welcome to This Week in the History of Psychology for November 6th to 12th. This is your host, Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, we'll first take a brief look at some of the most important events that happened during this week in psychology's past. Then we'll have our feature interview with Professor Ian Nicholson on the life and work of personality and social psychologist Gordon Allport. Finally, we'll celebrate the birthdays of some important psychologists. All this and more on this installment of This Week in the History of Psychology. November 6th, in 1929, Edwin G. Boring's classic book, A History of Experimental Psychology, was published. This was the first book in the Distinguished Century Psychology series, and the book was the primary text and reference work in the history and systems of psychology for decades. For November 8th, in 1943, the standard form of Henry A. Murray's Thematic Apperception Test, or TAT, was published. The TAT was long a popular projective test in which patients make up stories related to a picture they are shown. And for November 9th, in 1899, Alfred Binet joined and became advisor to La Société Libre pour l'étude psychologique de l'enfant, or the Free Society for the Psychological Study of Children. Binet started publication of the Society's Bulletin in 1900 and became president of the Society in 1902. In 1917, the society was named La Société Alfred Binet. Also on November 9th, in 1925, in a letter to APA Secretary John Anderson, Morton Prince offered to donate the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology to the APA. For November 10th, in 1855, Wilhelm Wundt received his MD degree, summa cum laude, at the University of Heidelberg. His doctoral thesis was on touch sensitivity in people with symptoms of hysteria. For November 11th, in 1770, London's Bethlehem Hospital stopped allowing the public to freely view the inmates. After 1770, admission was by ticket only, and legitimate visitors were accompanied by an attendant. Also for November 11th in 1941, 13 women psychologists met at the Manhattan apartment of Alice Bryan to plan a national organization to promote the employment of women psychologists in government during wartime. The National Council of Women Psychologists, later named the International Council of Psychologists, grew from this meeting. For November 12th, in 1935, the first modern surgery on the frontal lobes for treatment of mental disorders was performed by Egas Moniz at Santa Marta Hospital in Lisbon, Portugal. Moniz eventually developed a technique that led to the prefrontal lobotomy technique of the 1940s. Also for November 12th in 1936, the first verbal report of the use of insulin shock therapy for schizophrenia in the United States was made by Carl Bowman to the New York Society for Clinical Psychiatry. Bowman was director of the Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital in New York City. 
And also on November 12th in 1952, Hans J. Isang's article, The Effects of Psychotherapy, an Evaluation, was published in the Journal of Consulting Psychology. Isang's review of controlled studies of traditional psychotherapy showed non-significant differences between treated and untreated individuals. On November 11, 1897, Gordon Allport was born. Allport would go on to practically found the field of personality psychology and to make major contributions to social psychology. Although he helped to bring about an important scientific turn in these fields, he consistently stopped short of the claim that their complexities could be fully captured by the use of scientific methods alone. In addition to the scientific approach, he also promoted an ideographic approach to personality, which made him a popular figure among humanistic psychologists. In addition, his work was deeply informed by his own profound religious commitments. On the phone to talk to us about Allport's life and work is Professor Ian Nicholson of St. Thomas University in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada. Professor Nicholson is the author of Inventing Personality, Gordon Allport and the Science of Selfhood, published by the American Psychological Association in 2002. Professor Nicholson, could we start by looking first at Allport's background? Where was he from and, and what was his training and his early interests? Hey, Allport was from the Midwest. Uh, he was born in 1897 in Montezuma, Indiana, and he grew up in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, his parents are what I would call uh, archetypal self-made people. Uh, both of them were from poor farming families, uh, and they worked themselves up to positions of prominence in the local community. His uh, father was a physician, and his mother was uh, quite a well-known social activist in Cleveland, and she was involved in uh, many of the major causes of the day, uh, probably the best examples being the Women's Christian Temperance Union, uh, the Foreign Mission Society, and an uh, organization called the Mother's Club, which was uh, a group of... Uh, of Cleveland women who were uh, interested in, uh, in social welfare. I think a really important point to emphasize with Allport's background was uh, the intense religiosity that permeated the home, uh, especially when Allport was very, very young. Uh, his parents were uh, devout Methodists in the, the, the fullest sense of the term uh, devout. Uh, there was no uh, dancing, uh, smoking, or drinking in the home. Uh, his parents uh, wouldn't even wear a, a wedding ring uh, because they considered that uh, to be a form of, of, of ostentation that uh, took away from their spiritual focus. This religious fervor subsided somewhat over the years, um, but the family and, uh, and certainly Allport himself uh, remained very spiritually focused, uh, and this is a theme that uh, pervaded Allport's uh, subsequent career as a technologist. Uh, Allport went to Harvard in 1915 uh, at the suggestion of his brother Floyd, uh, who went on to become quite a prominent person in the field of social psychology, and he did his undergraduate and graduate work uh, at Harvard. Uh, while he was there, he, uh, he majored in psychology and had an opportunity to study with some uh, very prominent people in the history of psychology. Uh, his undergraduate teacher was the famous German experimental psychologist, Hugo uh, Munsterberg, and when he was a graduate student, he studied with uh, the equally famous uh, British psychologist, uh, William McDougall. Allport spent a lot of time talking to Floyd, and uh, Floyd served as an important influence on his uh, Ph.D. dissertation. Throughout Allport's studies, his, uh, his focus really was, I would argue, as a continuation of his parents' interests, particularly in, in social service. 
And as, uh, as idealistic as it, it may sound today, his major interest was in using science to improve the, the human condition. And this is something that, that really remained uh, at the center of Allport's uh, career as a psychologist. Now, Allport was instrumental, ultimately, in shifting the American discussion about people's tendencies from one primarily about character, as it was called, to one about personality, as it later came to be called. Could, could you discuss that distinction a little bit and, and what role Allport played in the shift from one to the other? The distinction between character and personality is an important one, and it reflects a transformation in how Americans come to think about themselves uh, as the culture changes from a predominantly rural agrarian society to one that is predominantly urban and industrial. Uh, in the 19th century, when the culture is based largely in small towns and when the economy is uh, a primarily agrarian one, Americans tend to gauge themselves and others uh, using the term character. So it is one's character that employers want to know about. Uh, it is one's character that one wants to develop when one buys a self-help book. Uh, it's one's character that educators often identify as a centerpiece of their of their educational program. Uh, now, people were often vague about precisely what character meant, uh, but it typically referred to the extent to which an individual upheld the moral standards of the community. Mm -hmm. And we can really get a sense of this when we look at the vocabulary that surrounds character. The words that they use have a very pronounced uh, moral context or tone. So words like duty, uh, honor, manliness, service, reputation, integrity, uh, these are the words that are often associated with this concept. Uh, now, this fascination with the development of character uh, is gradually eclipsed, and it, I think it's important to emphasize the gradual nature of this change. We begin to see a gradual shift in emphasis uh, in the early 20th century from character to new category of personality. And what's very important to emphasize here is that this this transition, this change, is not a change just of linguistic fashion. It isn't just a matter of people getting bored with one word and then using another word to talk about the same thing. Uh, what we're actually seeing is, is the move from character to personality is a change in the values of the culture. So really the question that we need to be thinking about is what, what individual qualities um, does an urban industrial mass culture value as compared with a, a rural uh, agrarian culture. What we see in the new, the new culture, this new culture of personality is a, a vision of selfhood uh, that's defined less by uh, its moral, um, moral depth, if you like, and much more by its ability to differentiate the individual from the crowd. We look at the way people begin to talk about personality and, and, and how they describe personality, the sort of words that, that march along with personality in, in discussions of, of human nature. We see words like fascinating, uh, stunning, attractive, magnetic, glowing, masterful, forceful, creative, uh, and so forth. Uh, so what we see with this culture of personality, this discourse on personality, was a self that was, was really divorced from moral context. So concerns about ideals and morality and duty, which were so central in the language of character, are largely eclipsed by an interest in uh, self-expression uh, and self-fulfillment. The, the second part of your question, uh, Allport's role in all of this, really could approach that in, in, in two stages. Well, Allport's part of the story um, is in the way in which he links this broader cultural transformation uh, into the discipline of psychology as a whole. 
I would argue that Allport plays a big role in bringing the category of personality into psychology. And we get a general sense of his significance um, just by looking at the, the, his list of the firsts, if you like. Allport wrote the first literature review of personality in 1921. He did uh, the first dissertation in psychology on the subject of personality in 1922. He taught one of the first courses on personality, offered one of the first textbooks on personality, developed one of the first personality tests, uh, and so forth. Uh, he's also one of the first people to argue against uh, using character as a psychological concept. In his early uh, graduate work and some of his early publications, he says that character is the person viewed in a moral context and personality is the person as they really are. So he's suggesting that it's actually possible to, to, to look at people uh, completely independently of any cultural context. Now, the question that I got interested in is what is the relationship between this psychology of personality that Hallport is developing and the culture of personality that seems to have so much salience in, in the wider culture? I would argue that there's a, a very big relationship, but like so many things in the history of psychology, that it's not an entirely straightforward relationship. Mm -hmm. And here, I think it's useful to make a distinction between Allport's early work uh, as a graduate student uh, and his, his later work. What Alport did in his early career is to take what had been a category of popular culture, that is personality, and essentially turn it into a measurable scientific object. So during the First World War, psychologists had begun the mass testing for intelligence using paper and pencil tests. And what Alport does in the early 1920s, and indeed what a number of other scholars uh, begin to do, uh, is to take the technology of intelligence testing and to develop tests of so-called non-intellectual traits. What I would emphasize is that these personality traits that Allport is measuring closely parallel the qualities associated with the personality ideal in the wider culture. The moral self of character is not something that Allport in his early work and indeed many of his contemporaries is particularly interested in measuring. It's these qualities of self-presentation, qualities and, and questions pertaining to uh, an individual's ability to compete with others. Is the person a go-getter? Does he have a masterful personality necessary to succeed in, uh, in, cha in changing an increasingly competitive world? One of Allport's major dimensions in his early work is uh, something that he refers to as ascendance submission, which we would really translate as, as basically as a measure of social dominance. Uh, he also uses uh, Carl Jung's uh, famous distinction between introversion and extroversion. Mm -hmm. Where things get, start getting interesting for me is in Allport's later work. Allport graduates from Harvard uh, with a Ph.D. Uh, in 1922. Uh, and shortly after that, he travels to Germany, uh, where he is introduced to uh, a body of psychological work that is very, very different from the kind of uh, material that he'd been exposed to in the United States. He comes to uh, to appreciate the work of a, psych a famous psychologist uh, named William Stern, who is probably best known in the history of psychology for having developed the, the IQ concept, but in, in, who is actually a very harsh critic of, of psychometric uh, psychology and uh, really of, 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 an, of a natural science-oriented psychology. Allport spends a year studying with, uh, with Stern, and he, uh, he becomes very dissatisfied with a psychology oriented largely around uh, measurement, and particularly oriented around uh, the premise that people were natural objects that could be calculated and, uh, and manipulated. 
basically what Allport uh, takes away from his German experience is uh, the idea that there, there, there really are limits on the reach of natural science, that there's some part of human experience that is beyond natural science, that is ultimately mysterious and unique and unknowable. This is something that we can kind of think about and appreciate, but we can never really discipline and never really calculate in any uh, ultimate sense. And Alport takes this idea quite seriously and, and doesn't actually compartmentalize it. He, he endeavors to bring this idea back into psychology and see if he can essentially constrain the march of natural science as it applies to discussions of, uh, of human nature. So essentially what he wants to do is to use the language of science to highlight the limitations of science. In this respect, this category that of personality actually becomes a, a useful uh, vehicle uh, for Allport because the term sounds very modern and scientific. Uh, at the same time, personality is not actually a brand new word. It has going back into the 19th century and, and earlier, it has another set of religious meanings. Uh, personality used to refer to aspects of human nature that made uh, people distinctively human. And what Allport does in his career is really to, talk, to play off this ambiguity. So he uses the scientific connotations of the word to advance the status of personality of the research category. And then, with a, sometimes with a, a, a linguistic sleight of hand, uses the, the religious connotations to reaffirm the, the fundamental mystery of, of human nature and also to reaffirm values of selfhood, which were, paradoxically, actually closer to the character ideal. Now, Alport actually outlined two different approaches to the study of personality, as I understand it. He, he made major contributions to the scientific study of personality. Um, he called that the nomothetic approach, but he didn't believe that to be the only legitimate one available. He also outlined what he called the ideographic approach. Can you talk a little bit about what is meant by those two terms and how they played themselves out in Alport's work? Ideographic and nomothetic are, are quite important terms in psychology, and Alport often is credit for having introduced them. Uh, the terms actually come from Germany, where they were used by scholars such as Wilhelm Windelband in discussions about the differences between the natural sciences and the human sciences. The nomothetic approach is what we typically associate with natural science. A nomothetic researcher uses the methods of the natural sciences in the search for general laws that apply universally to whatever phenomena or object the scientist is looking at. Now, this contrasts with the ideographic approach, where uh, a researcher is not so much interested in developing generalizations, developing general laws about general classes of things, but is more interested in understanding uh, a particular event or a particular person. So, for example, uh, we're interested, say, in understanding the unique circumstances that led to a particular war, not how wars in general operate, but what, what was it about this specific war that was unique, that... that, that uh, that led to the war starting and so forth. Now, what all prompted Allport to begin discussing this distinction, and Allport actually acknowledges his debt to um, his German predecessors, and really introduces this, this discussion in his, his 1937 uh, textbook, uh, was his feeling, his sense that, uh, that psychology was, was too much thrall of the nomothetic ideal. Allport was never a person who was completely opposed to or averse to 
to nomothetic approaches. Indeed, much of Allport's professional success came as a nomothetic researcher. But he, he really felt from pretty much from um, from his days as a postdoctoral fellow in, in Germany onward that psychology was was too oriented around nomothetic approaches, and as a consequence, psychologists had become quite adept at uh, discussing things in general, say, in discussing learning or intelligence. But when you ask them to apply these general principles to an understanding of a specific person, they didn't really have much to say or weren't what they did have to say wasn't particularly helpful in understanding a specific person. So what Alpo called for was not the abandonment of nomothetic psychology, but a, a greater spirit of inclusiveness for for ideography and for ideographic method. What's interesting about Allport in this regard is that he he, he called for this, this greater appreciation of ideography, but in, in terms of his own research, he, he didn't actually undertake a lot of ideographic research, or at least didn't undertake as much of it as what you might expect, given the forcefulness with which he discussed the topic. Uh, his, the one notable exception to that being uh, uh, his 1965 book entitled uh, Letters from Jenny, where he did endeavor to uh, psychologically interpret the life of a, of a middle-aged woman over a 12-year period uh, using primarily uh, uh, correspondence uh, and relying primarily on qualitative methods in doing this. Now, as you mentioned a couple of times, uh, Allport was a, a deeply religious man, a Christian. Uh, what role do you think that played in his understanding of the personality and in his, and in his other works, such as uh, that on the nature of prejudice? Yeah, I think it played a, a very great role. Um, in fact, I would argue that spirituality is at the center of Allport's entire approach to psychology. Uh, and this sometimes comes as, uh, as a surprise to people who aren't very familiar with the the biographical details of Allport's work. As Allport did not advertise his uh, his religious orientation. Um, uh, he he was devout uh, a believer in God um, and a person who, in fact, really believed that God was working through him uh, in his effort to maintain a space for spirituality in an increasingly uh, secular material age. That said. Uh, Allport was not aggressively denominational in the psychology. He did not try and develop an explicitly uh, Christian or Anglican theory of personality. Uh, where his spirituality did intersect and inform his psychology was on the basic question of the nature of human nature. Was human nature subject to scientific mastery, or was there a metaphysical dimension of human experience beyond the reach of science that could only be tapped into through some kind of religious or spiritual language? And what we see in Allport's writing, and this is a consistent theme that permeates virtually all of his general commentary on personality, is a, a consistent sort of skepticism or spirit of doubt with respect to the scope and power and potential of science. Allport always preserved the idea that uh, that, that personality uh, could never be completely known and could never be completely captured, that there was at the end of the day, a mysterious, soulful quality to people uh, that was beyond science. So that, I believe, is one, one area where there's a very, very strong um, connection or influence um, of Allport's religious background with Allport's work as a psychologist. I think uh, a somewhat more obvious uh, connection comes from Allport's work on prejudice. 
uh, as a practicing Anglican, Allport was very alarmed by some research in the 1940s that appeared to indicate that people had, uh, or excuse me, that people who had no religious affiliation were less prejudiced than people who did have religious affiliation. This finding troubled Allport because it seemed at odds with his own personal experience and with the ideals of the great religions, which stressed uh, love and charity and so forth. So in an attempt to reconcile this paradox, uh, Allport introduced a distinction that became quite influential in scholarly circles. Uh, this is a distinction between intrinsic and extrinsic religion. This is a distinction which continues to uh, to be much discussed in, in psychology of religious circles. Um, extrinsic religion is, uh, where Allport defined it as a religion of self-centeredness. Uh, and such a person uh, would go to a, a church or a synagogue really as a means to an end. Uh, for what they personally could get out of it. And this was often a person who, for whom um, church membership, uh, uh, forms of liturgy, uh, forms of dress, uh, really the whole kind of social apparatus associated with religion was, was very, very important, and for whom religion was often really a vehicle for uh, respectability uh, and social advancement. And Alport contrasted that with, with intrinsic religiosity, whereby... Uh, he saw religion as really being an end in itself. And uh, here such a person was less focused on the social side of religion and more focused on the higher ideals and higher spiritual principles associated with this religion. And what Alport endeavored to do is to develop a, a way of, of measuring or, or, or gauging uh, these categories of intrinsic and extrinsic religiosity with a view to arguing that the, these findings which indicated that people who had a religious affiliation were, uh, in fact, more prejudiced than people who didn't, but those were people who, had, who were extrinsically religious, and that people who were intrinsically religious were, in fact, less prejudiced than individuals who, uh, who didn't have any religious affiliation at all. Well, thank you very much. We've been speaking with Professor Ian Nicholson of St. Thomas University in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada, about the life and work of Gordon Allport. Professor Nicholson is the author of Inventing Personality, Gordon Allport and the Science of Selfhood, published by the American Psychological Association in 2002. You can find four of Gordon Allport's articles, including his 1939 presidential address to the American Psychological Association, at the Classics in the History of Psychology website. And now it's time for birthdays. On November 6th, in 1874, Helen Bradford Thompson Woolley was born. Woolley was a child clinical psychologist and the first director of the Child Development Institute at Teachers College, Columbia University. Also on November 6th, in 1878, Kurt Goldstein was born. Goldstein was a neurologist specializing in brain injuries when he was influenced by Gestalt psychology. Gestalt holism led Goldstein to a distributed functions theory of brain activity. For November 7th, in 1818, Emile Dubois-Raymond was born. His work on the electrical nature of nervous transmission was important in the development of neuropsychology. And also for November 7th, in 1903, Conrad Lorenz was born. Lorenz won the Nobel Prize in 1973 for his work on innate behaviors, especially imprinting. The concept of critical periods of development and learning is derived from Lorenz's work. For November 8th, in 1884, Hermann Rorschach was born. Rorschach developed the famous inkblot-style projective personality test. Constructed in 1911, the test was not published until 1921. For November 9th, 
1898, Leonard Carmichael was born. His contributions were in the areas of child psychology and biopsychology, with special emphasis on the importance of genetic determinants of behavior. Carmichael was American Psychological Association president in 1940. For November 10th, in 1859, Edmund Clark Sanford was born. Sanford earned his degree under G. Stanley Hall at Johns Hopkins University and went with Hall to Clark University where he supervised the psychology laboratory. He was American Psychological Association president in 1902. That's it for this episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. We would love to hear your comments on the show. You can email us at twithop, that's the initials of This Week in the History of Psychology, T-W-I-T-H-O-P, at yorkuyorku.ca. We would like to thank York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website today in the history of psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes quote directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or of York University. Thank you.